Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. As usual, I'd like to start this episode by telling you about the war in Ukraine. However, I'm acutely aware that there is now another major war that's going on, and it pains me to see so many people suffering in Israel and Gaza at this very moment. My story today is about Mariana Mamonova, a combat medic of a Ukrainian Marine Infantry Battalion. Mariana survived six months of Russian captivity as a prisoner of war while being pregnant until she was exchanged and freed in September 2022. I hope that hearing Mariana's cheerful voice might give a bit of hope to those of you who need it right now. This is just a few excerpts from a two-hour-long interview that I will link in the show notes. I was at our medical post on the seashore. Our commander contacted us via the field telephone and said, expect landing of Russian marines from the sea. Defend the shore. What? What landing? Are you serious? There's five of us, five assault rifles. Actually, it was very scary. Never mind my laugh. I was really scared. At that time, I was already pregnant, but I didn't know about it yet. I just didn't have any time for myself. Everyone was taking care of someone else. I had to think about what to do with the wounded, how to retrieve them, how to get them to the hospital, since the road was being shelled. I found out in the middle of March, when I was at the steel plant in Mariupol. I had a single pregnancy test, which I found by accident while going through my stuff. It was like being in a reality TV show when they suddenly appear and tell you, congratulations, you're going to be a mom. And you're like, oh my god, no, this is not happening to me. They're talking to someone else. And they're like, no, it's you. Congratulations. Aerial bombs are falling. Everything rumbles. And you get the news that you're pregnant. People ask me why I didn't tell anyone. What would it change? I'm the only medic of my unit, of my battalion. What should I have done? Just leave? Leave everyone? I'm an officer and I'm a medic. For me, it was unacceptable. I'm a Marine. For me, it was unacceptable. So I made a decision. I would stay here and I wouldn't tell anyone. In the interview, Mariana describes how she ended up as a POW and what happened to her in captivity. Fortunately, they didn't beat me. Yes, they humiliated me. But you swallow it. You don't show it. It isn't pleasant. For a woman, there are many things that men say that are unpleasant. You digest it and you say to your child, it's not directed at you, it's towards your mother. Because not everyone in this world is good. You have to understand that. That's how it is for now, but over time things will improve for us. Until the six months of pregnancy, I had hoped that they would release me. It got really scary in the ninth month, when I was taken to the hospital in the occupied city of Donetsk. They told me that there were no exchanges because the two sides could not come to an agreement. I was very round and due soon. I was very afraid to give birth there. Still, I kept telling my child, it's all temporary, we will come back home, you're strong. Finally, Mariana talks about her exchange and release. They take away your blindfold, and you see Ukraine, Chernihiv region, big yellow letters. People tell you, congratulations, you're home now. Seriously? Home? Congratulations, you're in Ukraine now. Do you understand what kind of word it is, Ukraine? And the most important thing they tell you, you're a free person now. Just a free person that can do anything. All this Chernihiv border, it's all yours. And no matter in which corner of Ukraine you live, it's all yours.
I walked and I cried. You know, after six months of being captive, I think a lot of people who come back, they fall on their knees. I was falling, but they caught me. I thought I would fall down and roll like a little bear. Today Mariana is well, and shortly after her release, she gave birth to a healthy girl named Anna. Unfortunately, there are still many more POWs in Russian captivity, whom Russia would not exchange or provide any information about. And now, on to bioinformatics. My guest today is Marie Sadler. Marie is a PhD student at the University of Lausanne, and she actually is going to defend her PhD thesis just a few days after this episode is being recorded, which will happen by the time you're listening to this episode. So feel free to go and congratulate her. Hi, Marie. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Roman. Thanks for having me today. The work, your work that we will be talking about today is uh, there's a paper called in cell genomics called multilayer genetic approaches to identify approved drug targets. And uh, can you talk about your background and how it led you to this work? Sure. Uh, so originally, I I did not start in the field of bioinformatics or genetics or biology. I actually studied chemical engineering, uh, but I was always more attracted to the computational aspects of any class we had regarding computations or mathematics. So during my master's, I then reoriented myself towards data analysis and bioinformatics. And that's how I uh, then started a PhD in statistical genetics with Zoltan Kutilik at the University of Lausanne. And so the focus of my whole PhD thesis is how can we integrate genetics and medication to better understand disease mechanisms that we didn't could target with medication, but also treatment mechanisms, like how does the drug interact in the body and how could we identify um, deviations from expected pharmacological response, which then also goes into the field of pharmacogenomics. And so regarding uh, this particular paper, right, what was the main goal of the study? So previously, um, studies have found that the drugs who target genes that have a genetic evidence in the population, that that gene is linked to the disease through natural variation, that these drugs are more likely to be approved. And now over the years, there's many different methods due to the emergence of different data sets that allow us to establish this genetic evidence. And there wasn't really any systematic study in the field yet that compared them side by side to see, is it more useful to only look at GWAS data? Can we gain any further insight when we integrate uh, QTL data, like omics data, to have this intermediate information of the uh, transcript or protein that's mediating um, the genetic effect? Or now with the advent of sequencing data, do we gain even further information by having a rare variant information and their genetic effects on diseases? So the goal was to compare all of them in the best fair, uh, uh, in the most fair manner um, to see objectively which method performs best. And so when you say genetic support, what exactly do you mean by that? So basically, if we have a, a, a gene and Individuals may carry genetic variants within that gene region that make them more susceptible to that disease or, or even protect them against that disease. So this means that this gene is having a causal um, role in conferring disease risk. So from genetics data, we have a very strong evidence about the causal gene, which we may not get from other data sources. Um, so it's basically a, a huge, large uh, clinical trial. Everybody's participating in by having information about their genetics and the disease to find these causal genes. So do you consider drugs and diseases that have 
only the genetic cause or is it also like do you consider drugs that may like target some protein and you link that drug to the gene that encodes the protein without necessarily there being like a variant in that gene that causes the disease but just in order to um, alleviate the disease or cure the disease you have to target this protein is this also like a link you consider we have to distinguish between two things that um what we try to find with the genetics are causal genes or causal pathways, but the people who develop the disease and whom we treat with the drugs that we found by looking at individuals carrying the genetic variant, they may not have the disease because of the genetics, but the drug still works for them. Um, so, so for instance, for LDL cholesterol, um, PCSK9 inhibitor is a very famous example where rare variants in that gene were found to protect against uh, hyperlipidemia and heart diseases. But it's only a very small number of individuals who actually carry these variants in this PCSK9 gene. But now the recent uh, studies that have been done on antibodies, but also um, on a uh, silencing uh, molecules, they found that these drugs are very effective in the global population, where the majority of the individuals, they do not actually carry a genetic variant in that gene or protein. Right. So, so the genetic variants, they just help you to establish that link. Exactly. And so if you imagine like a drug development pipeline, what stage of this pipeline are you targeting? On on which stage are your findings most applicable, I guess? So they're most relevant at the very early stages. So when it comes to find the target. Um, so finding the target and then later we can have these big screens or specific protein design that can inhibit um, the target that we identify. So it would be at the very early stage. Now, is genetics also relevant for later stages, uh, clinical trials, whom to recruit, um, at least at the beginning, to already have earlier signs of maybe if we enrich the clinical trial with a population for whom we know it works better based on their genetics, can it be helpful? Um, but this this research does not uh, cannot be applied to that. Um, so we're not there yet, I think, uh, to really define ideal clinical trial populations based on the genetics, at least not to my knowledge. And so if I understand correctly, uh, the, the, the rough process that you um, suggest or you have in mind is that, so we have a disease and um, regardless of whether that disease has some genetic causes or not, but maybe we could try to uh, find like GWAS that links that disease with some genes Right? And then we look at the genes, we look at the gene products, and we consider those gene products as potential targets to, for our drugs. Is, is that roughly correct? Yes, exactly. Yes. And so walk me through the uh, uh, different prioritization methods, right? So you, um, they differ by what data they get as inputs. So some are based on GWAS, some are based on GWAS plus some additional studies, right? Like uh, PQTL and EQTL, and some are based on uh, exome sequencing. Um, walk me through these uh, different methods that you consider and you compare to each other. Right. Um, so the first method we used uh, was based on GWAS data. Um, so we used a statistical method called Pascal, which is able to attribute gene scores to a GWAS summary statistics. Just just in case not everyone uh, is familiar with what a GWAS is, maybe, maybe let's let's start with that. Yes. So in a GWAS, uh, we compare very large populations of individuals who are either healthy or have a disease. In that case, we are in a binary setting. And in a genome-wide scan, we test each genetic variant, whether the allele dosage, so whether a person is homozygous on the reference allele, heterozygous or homozygous on the alternative allele, and we correlate that with the uh, disease status. 
So this gives us a genetic effect size and also genetic um, strength or p-value to see how strong that, that effect is or how statistically significant. We can repeat the same thing in a uh, quantitative setting where our disease is a continuous variable. For instance, LDL cholesterol, where we don't classify people into high or low uh, LDL cholesterol level, but we have a quantitative value. Again, we get a genetic effect size and a, a p-value. So this GWAS analysis, um, they can be done on genotyped uh, data. So on a microarray, you typically genotype about a million variants, and you can impute up to 10, 80 million variants. Um, not sure we have to go into the details of that, but basically we have genetic effect size for roughly 10 million variants throughout the genome. And these are rather common variants with a little frequency above 1%. So this data input uh, is, is used for the GWAS method, or we call it GWAS method in the paper, where we use GWAS summary statistics and also an LD reference panel to get the um, local correlation structure on the SNP level to calculate gene scores. Because in a GWAS, we have a SNP genetic effect size, so effect size on the variant level, um, but we want to have an effect size on the gene level, which aggregates multiple SNPs um, around the region of, of the gene. At this point, this is purely correlational, right? And so when, when we talk about effect sizes, uh, it's not that we're, we're claiming that there is a direct effect of, of the SNP on the, on the disease, but this is just some uh, somewhat arbitrary number, right, that established like the, the correlation degree. Um, so given that we're working with genetic data, we can almost certainly claim that's causal, so that we do have the direction that the gene is causing the disease. There can be some confounding, if that's what you're referring to. Well, I mean, first of all, as, as you say, there's this linkage disequilibrium. That means that a gene can, can show this effect, even though it's a completely different gene causing the, um, the disease, for instance or one SNP versus a different SNP, like this particular SNP, could not be uh, the causal one? Exactly. So we're not yet sure what is the causal SNP. Uh, we do have a, a likely causal signal, um, but finding the causal SNP or the causal gene, that's where we use this method, like Pascal. Um, but the causal SNP may not actually be measured in our GWAS data. And as you say, the, the, the local LD structure uh, from there, it may be hard to find which, was, which one is the causal SNP and which SNPs just correlate with the causal SNP and we still find an, an, an association. Um, so that's the main issue, actually. If we have multiple genes in a region that are potentially overlapping and we have a signal there, like to which gene do we attribute that signal? So what's the, what's the causal gene? Um, and there, as so, we tr we use gene scores, um, but again, we may still be wrong about which gene is actually causal, given that so many genes are overlapping and all will get a very high genetic score. So, GWAS um, has been like in in other studies that looked at the genetic evidence of drug targets have been, let's say, the most common or popular method to use to establish genetic evidence for potential drug targets because GWAS, um, they have been conducted now over 15 or 20 years almost, I think. And the summary statistics that you get, you can easily share them. So we no longer have individual level data. Um, so in that sense, this is a really great method because now in the GWAS catalog, you have so many uh, thousands of, of summary statistics that you can use to identify causal genes. But then again, um, as you mentioned, we may not know what is the actual causal gene and we also may not know about the mechanism. So even if we find a signal in the GWAS, we may, know may not necessarily know by what it is driven. Is it because of a protein coding variance? Is it regulatory? Um, and also, if it's regulatory, in what direction? Is it like increased gene product causing the disease or de decreased gene product? Okay, so I think it's pretty clear with the GWAS, with the Genome-Wide Association Study, but then you also propose uh, or consider 
um, integrating that with uh, something called EQTL and PQTL. Can, can you explain what those are and how do they help? Yes. So, so as I mentioned with GWAS, we may still be unsure about the causal gene. Um, therefore, over the years, many large-scale um, omics QTL uh, uh, data have has been generated, where uh, large transcriptomic uh, studies have been conducted to find the uh, genetic effect on the transcript level, so whether genetic variant is increasing or decreasing expression levels. And the same has been done on the protein level. So now if we overlap our signals that we have from the GWAS with the uh, QTL data, we may be more confident in finding what is the actual causal gene by looking at the transcript or the protein product. So um, so for this, we were using then the largest EQTL study that has been conducted so far from uh, EQTL gen, where transcripts have been measured in whole blood and meta-analysed across different studies. Um, GTAX is another very great consortium that we use because there we actually have transcriptomic information on, well, the where we have um, EQTL information available across different tissues, um, around 50 tissues, um, which which is um, of great use because um, the genetic effect size on the transcript level may vary whether we look at the brain or in the blood or in the liver. So in this data set, um, the sample sizes are a bit smaller um, given that it's harder to get uh, all of these tissues. And for protein data, um, the largest studies so far have been done in, in plasma. Uh, so there we were using data from the DECODE study where uh, protein levels were measured in up to 35,000 individuals. So if I understand correctly, the difference between the non-integrated GWAS and the... Um GWAS integrated with, let's say, EQTL, and that will probably relate to what we will be discussing later regarding um, the whole exome sequencing. Um, there, it's, it's sort of different, but in the in the GWAS, most of those variants are regulatory, so their impact not, is not through the um, like affecting the uh, protein structure, but through um, regulating some other genes, right? And so the difference between the pure GWAS and GWAS integrated with EQTL is that is just the way you attribute to which gene do you attribute a particular uh, SNP. So in in GWAS, you more or less simply find the closest gene to the SNP or closest genes, and um, in EQTL, because you have this information of which SNP affects expression of which gene, instead of simply looking up the closest gene, you go to that other gene that, you know, so this SNP affects, uh, let's say SNP A affects the expression of gene B, and then you attribute, you, you can more accurately attribute the effect of uh, SNP A, not to some closest gene, but the, to actual SNP, uh, to actual gene B, for which there is evidence that SNP A regulates gene B. Yes, is that roughly correct? That is a very good summary. Yes, thanks. <laughs> good, and I guess it's the same for PQTL. Is is there like what what is the conceptual difference here? Uh, obviously, apart from being based on different data uh, between EQTL and PQTL, and, and Maybe um, I don't remember if you explained the the difference. So EQTL means it's uh, based on measuring the transcripts, right? And PQTL means it's based on measuring the protein levels. But how how would you describe like on the conceptual level? Maybe the the implications of using different types of data. So conceptually, they are the same. The method it's literally just what is measured. Uh, so for EQTL, we measure the transcriptome. And there we have a pretty good coverage of almost all protein coding genes. 
And in the PQTLG-WAS method, we measure the proteins. And their um, current high-throughput uh, methods do not yet capture the whole protein coding space. So we are more limited in the number of proteins that we can as uh, assess. So we we were using data uh, that were using the uh, SomaLogic platform, and there roughly 5,000 proteins were measured. And we do have significant protein QTL, so significant effects or genetic uh, effects on only about 1,800 proteins. So the space at which we can look at is much smaller than we were when we did the EQTL GWAS uh, analysis. And also regarding the tissues for the EQTL GWAS, we looked at about 50 tissues by having the GTAX uh, consortia data, whereas for protein QTL GWAS, we only had uh, information from plasma proteins. But the way the data is integrated is exactly the same. So, so then, a priori, what would would there be any advantages to looking at proteins instead of uh, the the transcripts, given that it's uh, lower throughput? So, so in theory, looking at the protein level, um, given that drug targets up to now are mostly proteins, it would as it would give us the advantage that that we what we observe on the transcript level is actually translated onto the protein level. Um, so in theory, we would be more confident if we see a protein trait link that this is actually a good drug target candidate than if we only see a transcript trait link. Right, right. Okay, and then uh, there is the third or, or the fourth matter, depending how you count, which is based on the exome sequencing. And uh, can you explain uh, what, what that is and uh, how it works? Yes, yeah, so for the exome method, um, we used actual sequencing data. In this case, we used the whole exome sequencing data that was generated in the UK Biobank. And as already said by the name, we're looking at protein coding variants, and more specifically at very rare variants that you can only um, capture through sequencing method as opposed to genotyping methods that are up to now mostly used for GWAS analysis. And the way this method works is that we concentrate on these very rare variants. In our case, we use a threshold of variants with a minor allele frequency below 1%. And we also concentrate on only the variants for which we expect that there is a, an, an impact on the protein level. So those that are predicted to be either missense or putative loss of function. So this missense of putative loss of function variants that are very rare are collapsed into a burden. So each person gets a burden assigned and that's correlated to the trait. So either the quantitative trait or the uh, disease healthy status or disease status, sorry. Shall we explain in more detail what those things mean? So what is, what is missense and what is putative loss of function? Yeah, so missense is that uh, when we do have a different allele, um, this may have uh, a protein coding effect or not, given that uh, amino acids, you can have the same one with uh, different sequences. So not all of them are actually uh, protein altering. And putative loss of function, those were really predicted by algorithms to actually severely or alter the function of the protein. So there we're actually more confident that this variant um, results in a protein that's no longer fully functional. So there, this, this was a choice. Um, you could also only look at putative loss of function variants or only look at missense uh, variants. A previous paper, um, Bachmann et al. 2021, where they look at the whole UK biobank, they found that uh, the statistical power was increased when you combine both types of, of variants. And what is the um, rationale for only considering the rare variants? Like, what, what would you lose if you also included the not-so-rare variants in, in this um, study? So if you then also include the not-so-rare variants, you're more likely to recover the GWAS signals where you look at common variants. Um, 
but the G was like what's the advantage here is that you may pick up genes that are more constrained in the population. So for whom you don't have uh, common variants with the, the variant disease link. Well, I mean, that's still, it's still ongoing research uh, for many people, I believe, but um, there's a bit of consensus. I feel that if you have very high sample sizes, both methods may converge. Like you find the same disease genes if you look at GWAS or at a, a exome, like the whole exome sequencing data in like doing this burden test. But if you're having lower sample sizes, you may have different genes, which is also what we find in our study, that the genes prioritized by the GWAS, they're not necessarily the same as those prioritized by the exome method, because you may find this more constrained genes that you only find by setting this minor allele frequency to very low thresholds, and that GWAS uh, may miss. And so what did you find regarding these um, four methods? W which one was, was the best? So yeah, <laughs> as I already mentioned before, a bit through the data that goes in, they, they are not necessarily comparable the way you would ordinarily use them. For GWAS, you would go and use the largest GWAS you find, which is usually a, a meta-analysis between different cohorts. Whereas for the exome method, we only have access to the UK Biobank at the moment for, for where we have some statistics of this gene burden tests. So we did all sorts of adaptations also with respect to the number of testable genes. As I mentioned before, for PQTLG was we could only test uh, 1,800 genes because we did not have PQTLs for the others and the number of measured proteins is currently uh, only at about 5,000. So we then... Um, conducted our GWAS and QTL GWAS methods on GWASs only from the, from the UK Biobank to have a fair comparison with the Axel method. And we also downsampled the number of background genes that we tested to make it comparable with the PQTL GWAS method. And we went, when we then made all of these adjustments, we found that there was no difference between the GWAS and the exome method, and both were the highest ranking methods. But GWAS did perform significantly better than both QTL GWAS methods. Oh no! Yeah, I know. <laughs> we're we're integrating right. We're we're adding more data, and uh, and it actually becomes worse. Is, is that what you're saying? Yes. So it's, at, at first, it doesn't sound very satisfying. Like, why would you spend all of this money in generating this large uh, QTL uh, data sets? I mean, at the same time, it's, it's not necessarily surprising because with the current data that we use, other people have shown that this QTL data only mediates a fraction of the disease heritability. Um, so it's this one big study, uh, Yao et al., I think 2020, um, where they showed that only about 11% of the disease heritability goes through um, gene X or altered gene expression levels based on, on, on GTEx data. So 11% is, is really low. Um, so what happens is that many GWAS signals we cannot explain by current data set because we may miss the right context. Uh, we have the largest data for whole blood, but not all of these um, disease-causing genes, their, their causal tissue may not be blood, it may be somewhere else. Um, <clears throat> and in GTEx, we are currently rather underpowered to get this genetic effect sizes on transcript levels in all these other tissues. So that's a, that's a big point. And also, well, this may not and uh, explain it entirely, but we only use Mendelian randomization to do this integration of QTL and GWAS uh, data. There's other methods, although I don't think if you if you would use another method, you may drastically improve um, the yield. And can you explain uh, briefly what Mendelian randomization is? Right. So that's um, 
Mendelian randomization, as we were discussing before, um, allows you to get the causal effect, the putative causal effect of an exposure, which in our case is the transcript or the protein level on the trait on, on outcome, which how here is a disease or disease-relevant phenotype. And you use instrumental variables to get this causal effect, which for us is QTL data, which is the genetic effect on the exposure, and then the GWAS data, which is the genetic effect on the outcome. And so what you're saying is um, the uh, EQTL or PQTL methods did not perform so well, but you, you think it's not because of the conceptual issues with the methods, but just because of the limitations of the, of the data we currently have? Yes, that's correct. But what is also important to say that is that even though they did not necessarily perform so well, um, they do provide us more insights than the other method. Like We are really confident that if we find an effect, it's really because increased gene product or decreased gene product is causing the disease. So when we think about drug targets, uh, we want to know, do we have to develop a drug that's inhibiting the function or rather an agonistic drug? Um, so in that sense, they are still very valuable, although um, they were not as performant in identifying this known drug target. And for the axon method, while we are almost sure that it's because of the loss of function of the protein that we observed the disease, but we cannot be entirely sure. It could be that um, the, the variant is actually trade increasing or trade decreasing. Um, like it's not entirely uh, obvious from the burden uh, statistics in what direction it goes. And by the way, we didn't also explain like what what this burden is or how how it's calculated. Is it just a sum of of the scores of like individual variants, or what what is it? So there's different ways to calculate the burden. The way we used it, uh, we, we used actually the summary statistics from Buckman et al. So we did not, we calculate the burden ourselves. Um, but it was like people who would not have any rare uh, misanthropotative loss of function variant, they would be encoded as zero. So their burden would be zero. And if individuals had at least one of these variants, it would be one. So even if they had 10, um, I don't think that's, it's realistic, but if they had, let's say they had 10 rare variants um, in that gene, they would still be one unless one of these variants, they were uh, homozygous on those. So the individuals who had uh, both copies um, of their gene um, or the variants predicted to be rare, uh, misanthropotative loss of function, they would be two. And then this burden is then correlated with the disease status. But there's different ways. You could also use the sums of really counting how many of these rare variants um, an individual carries and then correlate that with the disease status. And maybe now is a good time to explain how you actually evaluate um, the, the methods. So the methods, um, first of all, what, what do they output? Does each have to prioritize a fixed number of genes? Do they have each have like a 10 attempts to guess uh, the gene or do they produce different uh, numbers of genes and how do you then judge whether that prioritized set of genes is, is a good one right so for each method we get a gene p-value so that's our starting point on how we get this gene prioritization scores that we overlap with the drug targets and what we do then is to be as fair as possible, we do not set a threshold on the p-value that we get, but we take the top 1% genes as the significant disease genes. Except for the PQTL-GWAS method, we used 5%, given that our gene universe was only about 1,800. Using 5% would result in a more comparable number of disease genes with this 1% that we used for the other methods. So we used um, two uh, different approaches. One was 
using a um, Fisher's exact test to really get an enrichment value between this prioritized disease genes and our drug target genes. And the other approach was using the area under the receiver operating curve, where we don't need to set a threshold. So there we don't say it's 1% genes, but we look at the whole distribution to get an AUC value. But in both cases, you you rely on uh, the sort of um, ground truth set of, of genes. And where, where does that come from? So there we use different data bases um, to derive what is actually a drug target gene and for which disease is this gene a drug target. Um, so we use Campbell where we get this drug indication and drug protein link. Um, then we also use from a rather recent publication, reverse at all the drug indication links. We use the Stitch database that provides us drug to protein interactions and the DGIDB, the drug gene interaction database that also gives us this drug gene interaction link. And we combine these databases to then go from the indication to the drug and then from the drug to the gene to get this target indication links, is, which is what we are interested in. I mean, in our benchmarking analysis, we are not looking on the drug level. There can be many drugs targeting the same gene, and we would only be interested in the gene disease link. And we decided to look at different databases because uh, not all of them define drug targets in the same way. Combined together, how, how many drugs would you say does that data cover? So what we find is that on average, the number of drugs that we have per disease is around 40. But then the number of targets really differs a lot or the number of, uh, let's say, uh, gene disease links. If you look at the Campbell database, we had a total of about 700 gene disease links, whereas in the other databases, it was more about 7,000 because these databases, they re re would report many more uh, drug gene interactions than what you have in Campbell. So generally, do they define these links as the drug, the molecule interacting with the gene product? Or um, w what are the definitions that, that they use? Yeah, generally, I think it's, it's more the gene product. And what's the main difference is that they scrape the information from different original sources, and then they combine it all together. So there can be some con contamination when uh, the gene is what a pharmacogenomic gene, so maybe it influences drug concentration in the body, but it does not have an effect on the drug efficacy. Okay. And and for scoring, do you consider each of these um, sources independently, or do you just combine all, all those genes in a, in a one big set? So we, we look at these sources or combination of sources independently, and then we also give a combined benchmarking score where we um, combine them all. And we do take into account how correlated they are <clears throat> when establishing the confidence measure that we have uh, on the score. And so one aspect of your study that we haven't mentioned yet is, is the use of networks and network propagation. Uh, can you talk about that? Right. So... Um, if we have a, a, a drug um, that's targeting a gene, um, the effect of the drug on that gene may be propagated to nearby gene that then results in the uh, expected pharmacological response. So what this also means is that the disease genes that we find, they may not be direct drug targets, but through these gene interactions, um, they are related to a drug target. And we try to test this hypothesis by doing network propagation. So here we used uh, three different networks. The first one being the string protein-protein interaction networks, and the other two being co-expression networks. So starting from our um, initial gene prioritization scores that we got from these four different methods, we um, used a, 
uh, Markov random walk algorithm to propagate that signal on the network. So it, that interacting genes may suddenly also become uh, disease genes. And even more if these uh, are neighboring genes of highly prioritized disease genes by any of the four methods. And so since you have like a particular, you said like top 1%, Right, that means that after network propagation, some genes that were prioritized will be no longer prioritized, but instead they would sort of yield their uh, place in the list, in the in this short list, to other genes. Yes, absolutely. So the one percent uh, top genes, they will be a bit shuffled around. Uh, yeah, and and then presumably you compared whether that gives any um, benefits, right? If, if it's more sort of um, accurate and was it? So yes, it was. So network uh, diffusion helped in identifying known drug targets. Um, the analysis became a bit more problematic when we looked at the string protein-protein interaction network because there it helped so much that just looking at the network and not at all at the initial disease genes was the best predictor of drug targets. Um, so what I mean by this is um, what we found is that the, the note degree, so to how many genes a given gene is connected, that was the best predictor whether that gene was a drug target. So this hub genes, uh, which is likely because drug target genes are generally more studied. So in the string PPI network where literature is also included, um, these are hub genes. And therefore we have this kind of circular argument that what we put in into our algorithm is already defined, but what is the drug target? And then we benchmark on, on drug targets. But uh, for the unbiased co-expression network, it also improved a bit, but by far not as much. Yeah, yeah. And, and so... This brings me to this thought that what you're trying really to predict or what, what you are actually predicting is the genes that would be classified as um, drug targets of approved drugs versus um, you know the probability that a given drug will be approved given that it targets or doesn't target a particular gene, right? So it's, it's a somewhat different sort of ma metric and it, one does not necessarily lead to the other. Right. Um, well, I guess this can be seen more from a machine learning perspective if we do an out-of-sample testing of uh, whether this gene is predicted then in the future to be a good drug target or whether we just try to predict what has been known in the field, if I... Got it correctly. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking more like from a Bayesian perspective, right? So we have like two different conditional probabilities. There is the probability of, um, you know, gene being a target given that the drug was approved and the probability of drug being approved given that it, it targets a particular gene. And um, we don't necessarily have the data to transition from one probability to the other using the, the Bayes rule. So it's like a prediction in a different direction, not not predicting whether the drug will be approved given what it targets, but predicting given that it's approved, what will be found as a as a target of the drug. Yes, it's more the the the, the second thing, the um because historically it was not necessarily known what would it would be the drug targets like very often these have been found later on and now retrospectively we do find that the they were enriched for this genetic evidence but this has changed now like if you look at the more recent drugs uh, there was a good prior knowledge that this gene is causal often or well, i think now pretty obviously through genetic uh, evidence and large-scale genetic studies. Um, so this type of analysis, doing them on recent drugs, 
would give a very different uh, result. So do you have any thoughts on on the future of, of this? Are there any like new approaches that uh, you can think about? Yes. Um, so what we found in the study is that the drug targets prioritized by the GWAS and the axome method, they were often very different, suggesting that we get complementary information from GWAS or axome. Although, as I uh, alluded to before, is that as sample size increases, both methods, they may actually converge to the same gene. But given that, uh, as, as of now, the information may be complementary, it may make sense to combine the scores from both um, to get, let's say, a more perfect combined score. And also for the GWAS method, uh, so far we used a very, well, let's say simple algorithm of just using GWAS summary statistics and an LD reference panel to calculate a gene score. Um, but there's much more information on the SNP level of whether this SNP is regulatory, what's its function. So all this functional annotation data could be integrated into getting a more accurate genetic score and have have a better mapping of what is the causal gene if we do have a very gene-rich region. So those are different avenues that, that could be looked at in the future to get a better combined uh, gene prioritization score. And then, of course, when it comes to networks, um, as I was showing in the, in the study, we were showing that... Um, the string network is very biased and the co-expression networks that we use, they did improve the score, um, but not as much. But again, here, context may be important as well. And when we do have a disease where, let's say, the liver plays the, the major role, maybe it makes more sense to have a co-expression network based on liver data and not whole blood or any other tissue. So again, having a more precise context and based on that, deriving the, the network structure maybe help uh, to get good gene prioritization scores. Well, Mary, thank you very much for coming to the podcast. It was very interesting to talk to you and good luck with your defense. Thank you very much.